please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And when you find that, please stand with me. We're going to read God's Word. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Seeking a sign from God. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being alive and being able to be in a worship service. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to open up Bibles and read them. We pray, Lord, as we, as we think on your word now, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified in us and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking today about seeking a sign from God. Let's talk about signs. I know that every one of us have seen signs today when we were on the road coming here to church. Signs help us know where to go and what to do. Think of road signs. You've got stop signs. You've got directional signs. Right turn. Left turn. Helpful things to know when you're when you're on the road. People's lives are at stake. And it's wise to have good signs. Some signs warn us. There are caution signs. There are danger signs. There, there's those signs that say, do not enter wrong way. And sometimes they're ignored. People will blow through a stop sign. People will fail to yield or even miss a turn. At worst, they put themselves and others in harm's way. At best, they get lost. The signs are supposed to help us, not hinder us. As a longtime garage sale fan, a good garage sale sign gets you where you want to go. And bad ones do not. They misdirect you. But stop, stop, signs also identify and reveal. It's like uh, you, you, you come to a place and it says, Welcome, you are now here. It's always a good thing. You've reached your destination. Or, or, hey, look, there's a McDonald's or there's a, there's a gas station or, or a bank or, or a Starbucks right there. How many of us have felt relieved when being in a foreign place to see a welcome sign from home? But then there are the signs where bigger things than a cup of coffee or a hamburger are at stake. Big signs. Signs from God. So that we would know and be assured 
of what he wants us to do. Things that reveal or prove important truths. And people often look for signs from God. And many seek them sincerely. But what we see here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42, gives us an example of evil-hearted people that sought signs from God for the wrong reasons. And the context is the unforgivable sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That full and final and decisive rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the heels of that, Jesus has launched into a discussion of how, how our words reveal what is true about us spiritually. And how we will give an account on the day of judgment, even for every careless word that we have spoken. And now the, the Pharisees come back with a, with a stinger of their own here. They ask for a sign. They ask Jesus to give them a miraculous sign. And notice here in verse 38, they call him teacher rather than Satan. Now it seems sincere enough. It seems honest enough. It seems simple enough. Verse 38, they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. If only it were sincere. Their, their request was, as we shall see, was hypocritical and insincere. It was literally sarcastic. They were seeking their own agenda, not God's. And so when they asked Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you, what they're really doing is they were demanding an on-the-spot, miraculous miracle right then, right there, from Jesus. They wanted Jesus to prove to them, without a doubt, before their very eyes, that he was the Messiah. Now, weren't the signs that Jesus already had given them sign enough? I mean, he had just healed a demon-possessed, blind, mute man. That wasn't miraculous enough? How about the man with the withered hand that he healed? How about the paralytic? How about the two demon-possessed men that he healed? How about the leper? How about all the people that, that Matthew tells us that Jesus healed them and freed them from what Satan's hold was on their life? Not miraculous enough? What would have been good enough what it betrayed was an evil desire to control Jesus on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their demand was both hypocritical, it was insulting. What they were trying to do was find ammo to say more bad things about Jesus. Jesus' response is very revealing. He refuses to play their game. He will not do wonders on demand, especially for these unbelieving skeptics verse 39 his answer is this he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but you're not getting one except what's already been given an even an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign that sounds good too doesn't it they were seeking a sign from god but that wasn't good because the idea of them seeking after, it wasn't just that they were looking for a sign. It was that they were looking 
by demanding. And it wasn't just that they were looking by demanding, but they were demanding that they would not believe unless he did it. They were demanding it as a necessity of faith. You know, the people that would say, unless you prove to me decisively in the way that I want it to be proved, I won't believe. So Jesus' response is very revealing. He calls them adulterous. It's a a common Old Testament metaphor for idolatry, for false worship. And he rebukes that generation. He says that they were disobedient and unfaithful to God. And so he says, no sign is going to be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So let's look at Jonah. Jonah, Jesus is saying, if they would go back and do their homework, would let them know, would show them why Jesus came to earth, what he came to do. We see it in verses 39 to 41. Jesus says this. He says, No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let's think about Jonah for a moment. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach. And he was going to preach a very simple message. He was going to preach that they were to repent because of their wickedness, because of their sin against God. And if they did not repent, they would be destroyed. It's the same message that we give when we preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Where we tell someone, here's what Jesus did. Believe it or perish. You may not say it in those exact words, but that's what you're saying when you're preaching the gospel. And, and Jonah was to go do this, but what did he do? He, he rebelled and he went in the opposite direction. He got on a, on a ship that was sailing for Tarshish in the exact opposite direction. And God disciplined him for his disobedience. What happened? They were on, on this ship heading for Tarshish and a great storm arose and they were about to sink. They were unloading cargo. And he comes clean and says, it's me. The reason this is happening is because of me. Throw me overboard. And they do. And it tells us that that God appointed, key word, God appointed a great fish. Some of your Bibles say whale. Some say sea monster. I don't know. It was big enough to swallow a grown man. And, And it was a big fish. And, and, and he looked as good as dead to most people if they would have seen it. In fact, you could say that, that he, he was toast. He was, he was gone forever. But while he was in, in the belly of that fish, he, he had a change of heart. I don't know what it would have looked like. None of us were, have been there before. There's a lot of things we talk about, but none of, I can guarantee you, none of us have been swallowed by a big fish and lived to tell about it. And, but all I know is this, that he was thinking about it and he came to his senses and he repented right there in the belly of the fish. And so the Bible tells us that God had the fish spit Jonah out onto the shore. Literally, he, he hurled him out. He vomited him out. He spewed him out. Whatever word you use. 
Now, what happened when he got out? He went straight to Nineveh and he preached the message that God had wanted him to preach. And what did the people do? The people repented. The people turned from their sins and they received God's mercy. Jonah, being in the fish for three days, parallels the the period of Jesus' death and not only his death, but his resurrection. And this is, this is Jesus' first clear prediction of his death in Matthew. Three days and three nights. It was a Jewish way of referring to any portion of three calendar days. There is no need to see a contradiction here with the traditional Holy Week chronology, which many have done including a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday resurrection or somehow to propose alternative chronologies that some have done as well. But the point that Jesus is making is that just as Jonah was as good as dead and then was made alive, so also Jesus would go to the cross and be killed and be buried and rise again. That's what Jesus is saying. And the Pharisees denied those facts. The Pharisees refused to believe and be saved. The Pharisees refused to repent. In fact, Luke chapter 16, verse 31, says that even if someone should rise from the dead, it would not convince the hard-hearted. Even the resurrection will not turn the hearts of some. And so Jesus says, the, the, the men of Nineveh, will rise up. It means that they will take their stand. They will come forth as witnesses against Christ's generation. And they will condemn them at the judgment. There is going to be a judgment where each one will give account for what they have done. And the men of Nineveh will rise up and witness against them. In verse 42, Jesus also makes a comparison with Solomon. It says that the queen of the south, the, the queen of Sheba, we see this in, in 1 Kings chapter 10, that she went to the nth degree to seek out wisdom. And the Pharisees weren't willing to do anything but to accuse and attack. She had traveled far to, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But the people of Jesus' time on earth had Jesus right there with them. David's greater son. Their greater king. And he was with them preaching the gospel. And they showed little interest. The Gentiles in Jonah's day and the Gentiles in Solomon's time believed after hearing God's lesser spokesman. While this generation Refused to believe even after hearing of one greater. Something greater. The greatest of all was present with them. And they would not believe. It's as if Jesus is saying, you are going to continue to disbelieve in spite of all that I say or do. And ultimately you will put me to death, but I will rise again as a sign As F.F. Bruce put it this way, it will be a sign for your confusion, if not your conversion. If you're not going to believe, you will stumble over the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. 
So what was Jesus dealing with here? What he was dealing with here is worldviews in conflict on the outside. Spiritual battle on the inside. There were internal issues covered outwardly by words and deeds against Jesus. That's how it always comes out. And he countered it by the truth that this passage shows. You know, every time you come to a passage of Scripture, you've got to ask the question. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to read this and walk away. But God doesn't want you to read it and walk away. He wants you to be changed by it. And you've got to ask the question, is there a promise to claim here? Or is there a command to obey here? Or is there a truth to cling to? And here, there is a truth to cling to. And the truth of this passage shows is that Jesus is greater than all. And that God's word alone is reason to believe. Jesus took them to the word of God, Jonah the prophet, took them to the story of Solomon and his wisdom, took them to the prophets, took them to the book of wisdom, to show them that he is greater than all and God's word alone is reason to believe. They didn't need to be asking for miraculous signs on demand. And so he gave them this truth to counteract the self-focused subjectivity of the Pharisees and those like them. God gave them objective truth that was focused on him, not them. And it was absolutely trustworthy rather than deceptive as they were. He cited Jonah and Solomon. He's pointing them to the objective truth of the word of God. And what does this have to say to those of us who are are basically just trying to mind our own business, live a quiet and humble life before God, and make a difference where we live, and make a difference where we work, and where we go to school, and where where we play, and where we interact? See, we encounter, like Jesus, we encounter those internal and external obstacles as well. We deal with things that anger us, both from believers and non-believers alike. I read an article this week uh, of a noted atheist who is saying the most horrendous things about Jesus and the Bible and anyone who would dare to believe. And under the guise of, of being intellectual, this person is spewing forth basically garbage about God and His Word and the Spirit and dwelt church. And many people are going along. What does it have to say to us who are wanting to please God? That we are also in a spiritual battle, and we don't like to think about that, but we are in a spiritual battle. And it's covered up by things external, but there, is, there are things going on beneath the surface, this unseen spiritual battle with evil, that is very real. And so, therefore, we need discernment. You know, people are, are, are either suspicious or gullible or discerning. The suspicious question everything and, and can be malicious, such as these scribes and Pharisees. The gullible accept anything and everything and are deceived. But the discerning reject everything but the truth. They sift it out. They they weigh it against the word of God. See, the gullible believe lies. The 
The suspicious are blind to their own faults. And both tend to be very superstitious. And so they will need to have things confirmed to them by miraculous signs before they believe. They will say, unless I have this answer, uh, this question answered, I'm not going to believe. And they hold that above the heads of anyone they're, they're involved with. And, and, and they're like, well, you couldn't answer my question. I, I'm not going to do it. That's, that's arrogance. Outright arrogance against God. But the discerning ways things carefully according to the word of God. So what should we do? What should we do then as we are interacting with people who maliciously look for reasons to, to reject God? What do we do with, uh, the, as we interact with people who are gullibly accepting and falling for anything because they're standing for nothing? What do we do with those, and how do we relate to those who, who are superstitiously looking for signs? And, and I guess most importantly, how do we deal with our own propensity, our own tendencies to do the same things? Well, the first thing we need to do is, is do a motive check. Check your motives. It, it, it basically comes down to motive. Verse 38 showed us that the motives of, of the scribes and the Pharisees were, 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 not, were not pure at all. So ask yourself the question, why am I seeking some sort of sign? And I won't believe it until I see it. Why? And, and why do you say, Lord, if you, if you want me to do X, make sure that Y happens first. Then I'll do X. So then I'll know for sure that you really want me to do that. We need to pray to God to reveal the hidden motives of those who are evil and, and want to deceive. And, and most importantly, we need to pray that God will uncover the motives of our hearts. Because we can be deceived. What does James tell us? James in chapter 4 says that you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There was wrong motives. It even says in, in James 4, 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It, you make yourself out to be an enemy of God. So we've got to ask the question, do I really want what God wants or is it really what I want and I'm going to try to put a God covering over it? The second thing we need to do is rely on God's power. Rely on God's power. Verses 39 to 41, speaking of Jonah, is really pointing to God's power, and God's power is resurrection power. God's power is, is, the, is creative power with which he, was, he is able to speak the world, world out of nothing, with which he is able to transform lives that were spiritually dead and make them alive. That power that he used to raise people from the dead that power he has to, to do anything he wants, anytime he wants. We've got to rely on God's power. And Jonah, as Jesus is using this example of Jonah, Jonah foreshadowed the cross and the resurrection. The supreme power of God uh, being evidenced in the resurrection. And Jesus here is, by the way, highlighting the fact that Jonah is not a legend or a fable, but historical fact that it's scripture 
and foretells his death on the cross in the process. And yes, an evil and, and adulterous generation will seek for miraculous signs and demand them before they will believe. But they're going to get nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's the sign. Christ and him crucified. So we're going to keep preaching that gospel. There's not another one. And no, and no one will make any progress, by the way, spiritually speaking, until they stop stumbling over the rock of offense, the, the stone of stumbling. The idea is, and, and you can all, anyone here who's a believer can, can, can attest to this in your own life, that you made no spiritual progress until you, you humbled yourself before God, before, until you admitted that you needed Jesus. And so if you don't know Christ, you need to turn to Jesus and be saved. And if you do know Christ, you need to trust him to lead you in your life. It is that simple. I love baptisms. And I love the fact that today people were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and they took a decisive stand for Jesus. They've already been saved. They're forgiven. They're secure in Christ. And they want to stand up and say, I belong to Jesus. First and foremost, do you remember what all three of them this hour said? They want to do it because it's to obey Jesus. That's what Jesus says to do. You know, it's like the person that, the person, the Christian who says, I'm not going to get baptized, is like a person who gets married and says, I'm not going to wear a wedding ring because that's going to cut down on my options. Yes, that is evil. Now, the person who says, I'm not going to wear a wedding ring because my job is a hazard and it might pull my finger off, I can understand that. I had a good friend whose finger did get pulled off by an accident at, on, actually in his backyard, but it, that's beside the point. <laughs> Those pesky bolts that are sticking out of uh, poles. Um, uh, but but what the, the, the idea is, is that you need to come to faith in Christ and then obey Jesus by getting baptized. And if you're, if you're a believer and you haven't got baptized, you're being disobedient. And if you're being disobedient, God's not going to bless you. Because blessing comes with obedience. Next thing we need to do is, is seek God's wisdom. Verse 42 points that out loud and clear. Just like the Queen of Sheba who, who was seeking God's wisdom and went so far out of her way to, to get there. Specifically though, we need to, we need to seek God's wisdom in Christ revealed in God's word which confounds those who think they are wise by the way and we need to trust God more than our feelings we need to trust God's word more than how we feel about things so here you are in verse 42 and Solomon is being pointed out and we've got to make this point Solomon was wise the wisest man on earth but here in front of the scribes and the Pharisees the, the one that they were calling teacher, but sarcastically and, and hypocritically, was wisdom itself in the person of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God. The, the Sophia of God. Sometimes, by the way, people are Pharisees. They demand for God to show the proof that he exists and that he really is who he says he is. And they gotta do it. he's got to do it in the way that they stipulate and by the way, often they are or they want to be seen as angry at God 
and fighting to be disengaged. There are a lot of people who are fighting really hard to be disengaged. And they do not know him like they think they know him, and they are, or at least are clouded in their understanding of him, and so they make these outlandish claims that, that hold no water. And those who reject Jesus will influence some. But none that belong to Jesus, none who are safe and secure in Christ, none whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, by the way, that was written before the foundation of the world, none of, of them will be led astray. By the way, did you know that? If you're a Christian, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the world began. But God's word is, is sufficient to believe. As we go along in this, in this line of thinking, a good question for us to explore is, as we're seeking God's wisdom, should Christians seek signs from God? I think that's a valid question to ask. Should Christians seek signs from God? Now, we know from verse 38, when seeking a sign is a bad thing to do, when your motives are evil, when, your motives, when you are dema- demanding God to do an on-the-spot miracle to prove who he is so that you will then, what, grant him uh, the privilege of you believing? <laughs> that's, we know that's wrong. But I want to look at a couple biblical examples, a few biblical examples here. Uh, the first is in Genesis 24, and it's Abraham's servant. Abraham's servant was sent uh, to a foreign country to find a bride for Abraham's son, Isaac. And he prayed, and he asked God for a sign. He came to this one location, and he said, uh, please let it be the, the young woman who, who I asked for a drink of water will also say, I'll give you a drink of water and water for your camels as well. Let her be the one. The Bible tells us that as he was still speaking, Rebecca came out. God answered the prayer. God, God requested granted his request before he was even done asking for the request. So that was a, a good request. Okay? Uh, 2 Kings chapter 20 is another one we want to look at. King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was going to die. And he asked God to extend his life. And, and he, the, the, the way he said he wanted to know if he would live longer is if the shadow on a stairway would go backwards rather than forwards. He basically asked God, not just hold still time, but, but make it go backwards. And, and God did it. God made the shadow go backwards on, on, on the steps, 10 steps rather than the way it was supposed to go forward. God honored his request. But the one I really want to look at is in Judges chapter 6. So go there with me, if you will. Judges chapter 6, and it's, it's about Gideon. And, and by the way, this is the, the, the story of when Gideon uh, put a fleece out before God. Uh, you might know that terminology, laying out a fleece or throwing a fleece out before God. Someone may even tell you, hey, you don't know what to do? Let's put a fleece out before God, and we'll, we'll pray about it and then see if God you know, answers us. And, and so the idea of laying out a fleece to God came from, from right here in, in Judges 6. Let me just uh, summarize part of it before we get to a few of the verses we want to read. Israel um, had, had returned to idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. And God um, gave them over into the hands of the Midianites for seven years as judgment against that sin. 
And the Lord appeared to me, uh, Gideon, who was threshing wheat by hand in the bottom of a grape press to keep it away from the Midianites. It was in a time of famine. And Gideon is, is sent by God to defeat the Midianites. And he builds an altar to God. He um, calls it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. The Lord sends peace. And, and he shows faith in a time of famine by actually giving a sacrifice to God of a young goat and a, um, a, some, some unleavened bread. And he pulls down the family altar at God's request that was to Baal. His dad had erected this altar. And he, he, he raises up a, an altar of worship to God, to the one true God. And, and the people were so angry that he did it, they were going to kill him. But his father, Joash, keeps the people from killing him the next morning. And then God's spirit comes mightily upon Gideon. And Gideon blows the trumpet and, and rallies the people for war against the Midianites. And, and then the fleece episode. Repeated twice, where God actually reassures him of, of his call on his life. And, and the question we've got to ask, and this is what he did, by the way. He says, you know, one time he says, let the fleece be dry, but the ground be wet. And the other one, uh, when I put this out uh, overnight, uh, let, the, let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry and all that. And God granted this for him. But the question we've got to ask is, was this faith or doubt and fear on the part of Gideon? And was Gideon right to do this? And should we do things like this as we're seeking to know what God wants us to do? That's the question. The answer I'm going to give you is this. No. We should not do what Gideon did. Why? Now, let me go to verse 14 of Judges 6. The Lord had already two times clearly assured Gideon of what he was to do. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I, do I not send you? I'm sending you. And so then, he says, please Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him again, verse 16, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So God had already assured him. So he was acting in, in really in unbelief. He was wavering. He was doubting. And here's another thing. God had already given him a sign. Verse 17. Verse 17, here's what he says. He says, he says um, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, the, the angel of the Lord said, I will. I will stay until you return. And he goes and present, prepares that goat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord takes the tip of his staff, touches it, and it, it, it burns with fire. It consumes the offering. And then he leaves. He has had this sign of assurance that God really had spoken to him. And then he asks about the whole fleece thing. So no, you shouldn't do that. The last one I want to ask, uh, show is, is Thomas. John chapter 20. The post-resurrection Jesus is 
has been showing himself to the disciples, but Thomas was not with them when at first Jesus showed himself to them. And so, verse 25 of John chapter 20, the other disciples say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And he says to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, they're inside, they're gathered, and Thomas is with them. The doors are locked, and Jesus appears in their midst. He comes and stands among them, and he says, Peace be with you. Wonderful words to hear from the resurrected Jesus. This is the peace he had promised. Peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, he's looking right at Thomas, and he's talking to Thomas, the one who said, I will not believe unless God does this. Here's what he said. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And then he said, do not disbelieve, but believe. He's correcting him. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. By the way, there and everywhere, then and now. By the way, you could say, well, you know, Jesus was so merciful with Thomas. Of course he was. But Thomas shouldn't have done what he did. Jesus being merciful with Thomas doesn't excuse that and make it a pattern for us. So while there are examples of people seeking signs and God giving them, the majority pattern is this. Trust God's word. Trust God's word to reveal his plan. Living by God's word in prayer basically beats seeking miraculous signs every day of the week. And Because why? We're dealing with what is objective versus subjective. God's word is 100% objective. Seeking signs is very subjective, especially if we're the ones setting the agenda for the sign. Here's what I need to see, God. All-knowing God. Here's what I need you to do. Um, It also is, we're dealing with what is Christ-centered versus man-centered. God's word is 100% Christ-centered. Seeking signs is mostly man-centered. I want to see something so that I will be able to do what I think I should do. And we're also dealing with what is trustworthy versus what is misleading. God's word is 100% trustworthy. It will never steer you in the wrong direction. But seeking signs can be very misleading. What if you misread them? What if you think the person that sees a sign behind every corner is tossed to and fro by everything they see? And they think it's all a sign from God. Oh God, if, if if the light turns green right now, I'll go do that thing I promised to do. Oh, if this song comes on the radio, I'll do it. I'll know that that's what I'm supposed to do. That's foolishness. It is right to sincerely seek confirmation from God. It is wrong to set the stipulations. The seeking the will of God really has to do with, shows our character. We're seeking what God wants, not what we want. And so when you seek the will of God, there are plenty of things that will be ruled out and ruled in immediately. There's nothing wrong with praying, Lord, please show me. The, the, Jesus 
told us in the Lord's Prayer, pray, thy will be done. Your will be done, Lord. We would be praying for this. But to pray, make this happen, and then I'll believe, or make this happen, then I'll know you love me, or make this happen, and I'll know you want me to do something, that just doesn't fit with Scripture. That's putting God to the test. We're not supposed to do that. Don't demand for God to give you signs. He, by the way, has given you all the signs and truth and assurance that you need, and it's in, your, it's in the Bible you're holding. So go there more often than, than anything and couple it with prayer. And you will see God do miraculous things. You will see and know and experience Jesus as the power and wisdom of God. And you will see that the word of God is sufficient evidence to believe. We must be careful. Because a person can sincerely want to know what God wants, but neglect the word of God in the process of that seeking. And they might keep praying, but ignore what he's already said. So we must sincerely seek God in prayer, coupled with a deep hunger for his word that drives us to scripture as the definitive answer. But by the way, you already know this, but God's word is not going to tell you who you're supposed to marry. And God's word is not going to tell you where your next job's coming from. And God's word is not going to tell you what your career is going to be. But it will put you in the path of the answer because you're going to be relying upon Jesus, the wisdom and power of God, and he's going to give you the wisdom and power to figure it out. The bottom line is, do you believe the word of God? Do you truly believe the word of God? The Pharisees did not. And God had already revealed his will to them through his word. And he has to us as well. And sometimes we're ignorant of it, and sometimes we don't want to do it. So we want to find something else. The word of God must be your final authority on everything because we're to walk by faith, not by sight. And in closing, I would just say this. Above all, God has already given the ultimate sign. It's the sign of the cross. We've got one hanging right here. It's big, it's lit, it's unmistakable. We put crosses up because God has given us the sign of the cross. And it stands, see the cross is empty? It stands for the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. And guess what? He's coming back. Jesus is the sign, the sign from God, the, the definitive sign from God. And it is significant. By the way, the word significant comes from two Latin words, meaning to make a sign and to indicate. It's interesting that Jesus, three times in this chapter 12, has already said that he is more than something. He's given a triple whammy, a triple affirm, affirmation of who he is, that he's more than the temple in the book of the law he is more than Jonah in the book of the prophets more than Solomon in the book of wisdom he's more than the whole Old Testament God, he is God's final prophet priest and king he is as Hebrews 1 says he God has spoken through the prophets in many portions and in many ways and in these last days he has spoken to us in his son why is this so important why does God's final prophet, priest, and king deserve our most serious attention and our utmost worship. Why? It's important because days are coming, but actually days are already here when Christians need substance. They need substance to withstand the onslaught of an evil generation that will on every side uh, repudiate God's word and say that God doesn't exist and say that that's foolishness 
And so you've got to stand firm against uh, the opposition, both subtle and blatant, of people who hate God, hate his word, and hate his, his spirit-inspired church, his spirit-indwelt church. And to do so, we must have pure motives as we rely upon God's power and as we seek God's wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, I want to say thank you for your indwelling presence and your unending patience and your gentleness and faithfulness and kindness and love and mercy and grace. And Lord, even though we know we we sometimes display the exact opposite of each one of those wonderful characteristics, we pray, Lord, that you would put in us a hunger for you that can only be satisfied by drinking even more deeply of your word and by spending even more time in prayer. Lord, our, the, my prayer is that we would, we would listen to you more than we speak and that we would hear only what you would have us hear so that we would do only what you would have us do. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen.